Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Deba Jyoti Ray. Dave is founder and CEO of Rivet AI. Dave, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thank you very much for having me, Sam. Uh, so, Dave, you studied math as an undergrad at the University of Toronto and actually got a chance to work in Jeff Hinton's lab. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and how your career evolved from that point. Yeah, so um, I was a math major, math specialist at the University of Toronto, and um, I was at the same time um, I was uh, really interested in programming and coding. So I wanted to combine uh, kind of both of my passions. And uh, University of Toronto, um, Jeff Hinton was one of the luminaries in the field. So um, really, what drew me uh, to the university and to to math in particular is I wanted to explore the field of AI. And in my first year, I actually convinced Jeff Hinton uh, to allow me to sit in one of his classes. And then at the end of the summer, I, uh, you know, I, I offered to, um, I offered my programming services, uh, you know, as an undergrad uh, researcher. And uh, I was really fortunate when they allowed me to um, do some of the projects. But I got a taste of machine learning uh, since my undergrad days itself. Um, working with uh, Jeff Hinton and, and other researchers in his lab, um, in especially in the field of uh, Bayesian neural networks. Um, and I had uh, several uh, publications coming out of it during my undergrad. Um, after that, I wanted to explore the field of uh, computational neuroscience and dive into neuroscience a little bit more. Uh, so I moved to London. But at that time, there was um, kind of a boom in the financial sector. So I made a digression into uh, more you know, hedge funds and quantitative finance. But in uh, 2008, um, I also discovered that I wanted to go back to um, academia, explore my, you know, explore my interests in, um, in deep learning and machine learning again, um, armed with a new set of applications. So I went back to grad school, um, went to uh, Caltech uh, in the computation and neural systems group. And there my focus was more around uh, generative models um, because you know, one of the advantages of deep learning models is um, it can capture very nuanced uh, statistical behaviors, very complex statistics behaviors. So I wanted to see if that could be used to as a generative model for, um, you know, to study different types of behavior, especially like behavioral economics. So that's something uh, that I pursued uh, during my PhD at Caltech, but more generally uh, looking at uh, generative models um, for deep learning. So from from there, while you, you did uh, start a couple of companies uh, between your grad school experience and uh, starting Rivet, uh, there is a, that connection in that you were working on generative models there, and now you're currently working on applying AI to the idea of content creation. Maybe tell us a little bit about the inspiration for starting Rivet. What what drove you to look at that problem? Yeah, so 
from the business point of view, previously, uh, my previous startup was uh, VideoAmp, which was in the video advertising sp- uh, space. It was looking at different um, behaviors, consumer behavior, and finding the best kind of video ads to target uh, to people. But what I saw there was, you know, advertising kind of sits on top of content. If you don't have good content, um, then you don't get the kinds of engagements. So that's one of the reasons why, you know, companies don't get as much ROI out of their video advertising spent. And the other thing that I saw is like the shift that more and more companies wanted to put their money instead of putting it into video advertising, they wanted to put it into sponsored content. Because at the end of the day, consumers, you know, humans in general, we resonate much more to stories. So an ad is basically grabbing attention. It's 30 seconds to grab somebody's attention and, you know, maybe create you know, Pavlovian responses so the consumer will go and buy something. But what really resonates with us, um, you know, forms culture, forms behavior, is uh, story creation, story making. So there were a couple of, um, you know, in terms of my own interests, um, I was, I've been very interested in natural language generation. So when we look at generative models, um, especially generative models for language, I wanted to see how that could be applied to uh, generate language. You know, you start with um, a training set, but you also feed a bunch of different parameters. So can you actually uh, produce narrative structures, maybe even uh, stories someday, right? Could a, could a, a model uh, generate a story? So that was my general kind of research interest. And also at the same time, um, noticing this kind of shift in uh, spend by companies from videos to uh, content, the technology, especially the deep learning technology was pretty ripe um, to be able to analyze content because, you know, the tech has matured to the point where you can analyze videos, you can analyze audios. Um, These things were not really very uh, possible um, a few years back, so it's really the perfect like confluence of tech maturity and the m- business moving in that direction, and also it's it's my personal passion, which is why what led me uh, to start Rivet AI. Maybe as a, a touchstone for folks, we can reference uh, a project that uh, folks may have come across. Uh, this is Sunspring. It was a short film that uh, starred Thomas Middleditch, who's the the star of Silicon Valley. And it was written by an AI, basically an LSTM. Uh, tell us about uh, that project and some of the the ways you've worked with the team behind that since. Yes. Yeah, so the company NQ uh, produced uh, Sunspring, and um, you know when I was making my transition from video advertising to content, I uh, teamed up with NQ because um, you know NQ is a production company that makes feature films, short films, animation films, and so on. And um, really, who creates the best content? It's Hollywood. Um, so I wanted to partner up with um, you know the folks who really know how to tell good stories, who know how to create great content. Uh, to and, and NQ is 
really was really the perfect partner because one of the principals of NQ is a Caltech trustee, um, Walter Korczak, and uh, he has also like funded projects in in AI and um, at, at Caltech. So that's how kind of we had a, a meeting of minds and wanted to explore the ideas even further. Um, Sunspring was uh, you know a project where um, the the tech behind it was essentially a very simple LSTM. So it's kind of like the same predictive text that you have uh, from your phone. So imagine you created a story by taking every predictive response from your phone. So Sunspring was the uh, the root, the seed word. And then when you start with Sunspring and imagine putting that into your phone, but something more complex, obviously. Imagine your phone phone's predictive uh, response is now trained on movie scripts and has a, a little bit more of a complex LSTM, long short-term memory model. And you started util- uh, you know, using very simple maximum likelihood estimation and picked every word that came next, every uh, next word that your phone suggested. So that's how that script was made. It was very simple. LSTM trained on um, sci-fi movie scripts and then just maximum likelihood estimation. So f- from there, the the real kind of genius in that project was um, the director, uh, Oscar Sharp, who was able to take a script like that and turn it into a very you know interesting, watchable movie. Interesting and watchable, but not necessarily intelligible. Exactly. So, <laughs> and and really, kudos to the the actors and the director for you know, making uh, something out of it. So. Um, but it was a very interesting experiment um, you know, that very few people could, would be willing to do. Uh, and so that experiment was like, what if we could actually take some model like that and turn it into a movie? What would that look like? And the response had has been very kind of uh, bimodal uh, in the sense that some people love it and love the idea of what it represents. On the other hand, you know, there's... Um, there's uh, hate. So whenever you get a bimodal response, but lots of responses, that's when you know you're onto something and that you have to pursue that. So we made several iterations, um, especially with you know Rivet AI. We made several iterations on top of the models before, and we came up with the next uh, generation of um, AI-written content after that. But also our philosophy changed quite a lot, which was... Um, Sunspring where was one where it was completely unsupervised. You know, it's a completely unsupervised maximum likelihood estimation. Let's create a script. And there's absolutely no direction involved. Um, whereas really, if, it, if you're telling a story and the story has to make sense to an audience, then two in, ingredients are super important. One is knowing the preference functions, right, of, of um, who your list or who your audiences. It could be in the form of general audience data, or it could be in the form of something that interacts with the director and tries to learn their preferences. And the second part is some sort of physical or even a cultural embodiment that AI program completely lacks. So imagine just an alien showing up, uh, or worse, um, and trying to just generate something with no you know, no idea of what the context is as, at all. So what we focused on in our next, next set of models 
was to really put a sense of sense of context in that, and also learn preference functions, whether it's you know a, a human interaction to a human interaction with a director or writer, or audience responses, and uh, so that kind of evolved into our next set of models, and our philosophy now is not so much AI written everything or AI autonomously generating content, or AI autonomously writing stories, but AI augmenting creativity in a couple of different ways. One is AI augmenting creativity because a lot of the creative process, you know, for those who are actually engaged in making content, a lot of the process is very tedious. Um, you know, 95% of the time goes into the tedious stuff and you know, only 5% on, on inspiring creative works. So our, our tech is more focused on augmenting uh, the creative aspects and trying to, where possible, take away a lot of the, or automating a lot of the tedious aspects. Can you give us some examples of where the tedium comes into play in this particular use case with uh, this kind of content creation? Right, so... You know, for listeners who are not in the content creation process or uh, filmmaking, um, what hap- the, the typical flow is, you know, you have a, a story, a script. Everything kind of starts there. And of course, there's a whole uh, lot that goes into making a script. But let's assume we start with a script. Now, the first uh, decision is uh, development, like whether you actually decide to work on the script or not. So... Usually a studio or a production company will get lots and lots of scripts and they have to evaluate um, whether they want to produce it or not. So tip, usually in the industry, it's, it's, it's kind of surprising how, um, you know, even when you have these amazingly huge budgets, there's not a whole lot of data that goes into the, that decision making. So there are different ways you can incorporate data into that decision whether you want to go with the script or not, whether you want to analyze that script, um, make some predictions of how well it would perform, and so on. So um, let's say you decide to go with the script. Now, the first um, the first point is, you know, first step involves a script breakdown. So a script is essentially just words on a piece of paper, but they need to be depicted physically. Um, or you know through an animation, so it has to go from words to actual physical representation. So that is a very tedious process. You know, you have a 200-page script. What happens now is someone goes in uh, with a marker and starts uh, going through the script word by word, saying, "Okay, this is this here is a character. The character says this, so um, we do need a person here in a in a speaking role." Or it could be, and they're sitting at a at a coffee shop talking about this. So you need to have a set with a coffee shop, and the the lead actor he takes a sip from a, a cup. So you need to represent that cup as a prop. So there are so many elements that goes from telling the story to actually putting it in in production. So that is something that piece itself is hugely time consuming, several weeks often. But that's something that we can solve with uh, natural language understanding because we can with a training corpus of previously annotated scripts um, we can identify where characters need to be represented where props are required what kind of sets uh, are involved uh, set dressing 
you know, do you need a vehicle? Do you need a mm-hmm. animal in that script? Uh, animal handler. So all of those, like that script breakdown process, can be automated. But there needs to be a better set of training data for that because uh, films all, always involve uh, analogies. So you can have a sentence like "buzzing like bees." So you don't actually have to have a bee in the scene; just an analogy. So those are, <laughs> right. So right. those are things that uh, kind of the um, AI needs to understand. It sounds like a very specialized named entity resolution type of uh, problem. Yes, named entity resolution that understands analogies or where <laughs> analogies are coming. So you have right. to have a context um, understanding there. So that's a piece. That's a huge piece that can be automated like going from like few weeks to just a few clicks of a button in a few minutes you have a script breakdown um and then from there you know the next phase is once you've got okay i need for like over 200 scenes every scene i need these 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 parts and this actor and this location then it's kind of a scheduling problem a budgeting problem so even the first phase which is uh, budget approximation. That, again, is a hugely time-consuming piece. But since we have all these uh, entities extracted and we have training uh, data from budgets and how these entities map to different budget estimates, we can construct budget estimates um, very quickly. Same thing with schedules. You know, you have so many parameters. You have a certain location where a film needs to be shot, and this actor, who's extremely, um, exp- whose time is extremely expensive. So, how do you combine these to get the best schedules in terms of both cost and uh, time effectiveness? There are, you know, billions of parameters uh, to deal with. That is often done manually in that industry, surprisingly. So, just. Automating a lot of that, just bringing in AI scheduling tools, just you know, gives you 10, 15 percent um, efficiencies right off the bat. Which for uh, these hundred million dollar uh, budget productions, you know, are substantial savings. So those are the tedious parts of um, just content creation, where AI can come in and automate um, and and provide uh, you know budget and time savings. Do you remain involved in the creative content generation side as well? Or have you mostly, I think of the various things that you've described as content support, but more on the analysis side, if you will. Do you tend to focus on that as a company now? Yeah, so we have also been bringing in different kind of tools, but uh, slowly. So first, it's kind of, whenever we uh, try to talk about AI in in the creative industry or content creation industry, there's a bit of resistance initially. So it's also a different strategy for kind of entering the market. So starting with analysis, starting with um, things that save time and effort, you know, builds more comfort in allowing people to understand that, yes, AI tools can actually help my work. You know, the the analogy that I draw is uh, AutoCAD, right? You had um, architects who, you know, where it was always considered to be a very creative endeavor. Nobody touched my uh, clay models. But then AutoCAD came in and took away a lot of the tedious aspects of architecture. And now it's hard to imagine, you know, 
creating these complex architect, uh, architectural models without using uh, computers and AI tools. So the same thing, you know, can can happen in the in the field of uh, content uh, creation, but incrementally. So one of the you know features we've added in is things that uh, make the writing better, but in the sense of hey, can we make it more readable? Can we make you know improve readability? Can we improve audience appeals? Mm. So for example, um, I'm thinking have, like. Uh... I'm thinking like Grammarly for script writers. Yeah, I mean Grammarly, um, you know, improves. It's it's um, targeted to a very uh, broad audience. So imagine for something that where people are creating content, where um, you can take something that was, let's say, readability level eleven, and if you turn that into readability level five or six, then you can show that it'll appeal to a much broader audience while keeping the fundamental idea, the story, everything the same. You're just kind of changing some of the words, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And simplifying the sentence structures. But all of a sudden, you've reached a much wider audience. So that's an example of how um, you can augment the writing, augment the the creation. Um, The other pieces are, you know, with uh, the short films that we have created, where the dialogues are actually generated. Some the AI characters, uh, dialogues are generated uh, with natural language generation. Um, so what is different with that uh, from you know, previous LSTM models is you know, I described the script breakdown. Now, the next thing you can do is you can also look at character interactions. So in scene one, let's say you have uh, Peter and Amanda interacting. and in scene five, they interact again. Um, you can look at the words that they've spoken. You can look at, you know, uh, the sentiment of their interactions. Um, you can even look for continuity by analyzing the sentences that they've spoken. So imagine doing that for a movie or even a, t- a TV series. So you can turn a script into a knowledge graph, basically, which is characters and their interactions over a period of time and use that to identify any um uh, continuity issues or things that trail off. Like it could be just a story sideline that uh, trails off and doesn't really add much to the central theme. Now, for for writers, for, you know, imagine like Westworld, um, there's so many little subplots going on. And when you go into a writer's room like that, it was, uh, it was kind of eye-opening for me going into a writer's room where the wall is literally covered with sticky notes and strings tying things together. Um, and, and the scripts are ginormous. So that's something that's really hard to do where, you know, again, bringing in tools like visualization tools and even a step further, like continuity analysis, looking into um, you know, things that trail off or you know, that improves the content generation a lot. But you can take it a step further, which is, let's say now I want to make certain changes to the story itself. Um, so I have a knowledge graph and I go to a certain node, which is characters interacting. And I, you know, I want to move around and play with, let's say, let's move the story around and let's see what happens. So there you can actually use uh, Bayesian inference to figure out what would happen to the rest of uh, the nodes if you make a particular change in one node. So 
those are the different ways that we can give tools in the hands of writers and producers so they feel free to change around different parameters of the story. Now, something we can't do right now, but we're working towards, is also mapping that to audience response data. So perhaps you can make tweaks to a story you know, in a way that will be more interesting to the audience. Or maybe you want to try something completely new just to experiment and see how the audience would react to something. Can you talk through the the knowledge graph and the the use of uh, Bayesian inference at the next level of detail? How do you translate that, uh, for example, translate that, uh, you know, knowledge graph and Bayesian inference to to something that's, uh, to an output that a script writer can use? Right. So, um, as an analogy, you know, you can use uh, knowledge graphs um, have been used in a lot of different domains. So, let's say uh, in in the case of you know, um, genetics, right? So you look at uh, pairwise interaction in one place, and then you can use Bayesian inference to say, okay, what if I, you know, made a change here, like the genetic code here, how does that influence things in other other parts, right? In connected notes. Um, in, a, in, a co- in more of a causal model, uh, where you know the underlying causality, you can make tweaks to one node, and you have a causal model that will tell you what happens as you move one thing and change and you know the effects that it has uh, further downstream or on the re- rest of the graph so we have certain um, models of sentiment and models of you know emotional interactions and character interactions um, these are not like models that you can necessarily write down but more uh, correlational uh, that we have picked up by breaking down lots and lots of scripts out there so there's a universe of like you know, uh, 50,000 scripts that may have been produced, um, an order of magnitude more if you look at scripts that have never been produced. So you can do this exercise with, you know, produce knowledge graphs for every script out there and learn some of these interactions. Now, the way we learned our interactions is we had you know, people uh, go and code these um, interactions or annotate uh from one node to another what the the sentiment interactions were so we we were able to use that data to train kind of like a sentiment uh causality graph if you change one one the words or the sentiment of one node how does that impact the others downstream so that's uh kind of like a high level version of how we can use a knowledge graph to see you know predict what would happen down the road how are we representing sentiment? Is it like trying to apply human emotions to these things? Love, hate, whatever. Now I'm really just trying to wrap my head around uh, maybe a concrete example of how a script might apply or translate into this model and then how manipulating this model helps us with the script process. Yeah. So, you know, the simplest example is, let's say, Paul and Andy are in a fight, and Paul kills Andy. Mm-hmm. So now, all of a sudden, that character Andy can no longer exist in the rest of the, the scenes, right? So that's a very simple inference okay. that you can 
apply to the rest of the notes. Uh, let's get more complicated. Paul and Andy um, fight, but then they realize they're working towards the same common goal. So therefore, their interactions now are positive. So now the rest of the, the nodes, if, you, if the next uh, node where Paul and Andy interact were uh, neg- was a negative interaction, so for you to change Paul and Andy's interaction to a positive one, you know that creates a big um, difference. Like it's, it, you basically leave a, an explanation gap between your node now with Paul and Andy's interaction and the next one. Um, so those are basically gaps that you can look at in the interactions, the characters' interactions that are that become fairly easy to identify. Now you can get a lot more nuanced. But what we see in scripts generally is that's not necessary. That's not really necessary. Um, if you look at successful scripts and look at their na- knowledge graphs, they can they tend to cluster in into very fairly predictable um, storylines. You know, so there's there's if you just map the sentiments, there are certain things like the hero's journey or the fall from grace. You know, these are things that um, even uh, Aristotle wrote about in uh, the Poetics, you know, identified a certain set of, um, of story archetypes. And things haven't really changed. Even after we analyzed all these scripts, these common themes reappear. It could be because humans tend to respond to those type of storylines. So at a high level, that's kind of a mapping to understand what is the general storyline from the from the knowledge graph. The second phase after that is, again, in, in terms of good storytelling, there is always a, a tension and resolution happens throughout. So if you look at good storytelling, it's, it's never a flat affect all the way through because that doesn't make for an interesting story. Uh, but something always happens, right? Even if you're writing a story about somebody doing research it's not like they kept working night and day and then found a solution it's like no you know they worked really hard they were close to a breakthrough then something happened and their world came crashing down the next day like they're you know they uh some of one of the relatives entered into a car crash and they got depressed so there's always has to be something you need that volatility in the story um just to attract the audience so those are things that can be extracted, um, you know, without necessarily going too deep into um, kind of an emotional analysis or a sentiment analysis of the script. Even like more higher level things that we can extract, like positive, negative interactions, friendly, unfriendly interactions. Those are things that we can extract from the script. And that can give us a very good uh, read into how well it would resonate with the audience. You've helped us understand the problem that you're taking on, providing uh, essentially creative support for script writers, in many cases centered around this knowledge graph. And, and you've mentioned, you know, using techniques like Bayesian inference. But in, in trying to apply kind of the full breadth of machine learning, NLP, NLG, NLU, you know, all of this stuff to these types of problems, I'm, I'm curious if you can talk through the like just what are what are some of the roadblocks that you've run into applying you know things that may have been created in some research lab to you know practical tools that you're trying to put in the hands of scriptwriters and how have you overcome those challenges 
Yeah, I mean, you know, our we have had to develop a lot of new methods along the way. So um, the one of the big challenges whenever we deal with generative models is um, a lot of the research papers, they look really promising because you read it and it looks like uh, this natural language generation technique really works. But a lot of the times it could just be really um, hand-picked uh, answers, hand-picked solutions. And you know, working with that very specific kind of data set. So, you know, LSTM, right, With that was an experiment we we did. If we could just generate a script using LSTM, what it would look like, and we ended up with Sunspring. But in trying to make that useful, we, we realized a lot of, um, you know, a lot of gaps, right, in where academic research is uh, right now versus what we need to create this full solution. So with LSTMs, we needed to augment that those models in a lot of different ways. So first, context becomes super important. Um, also, we modified those models to involve active learning because we wanted to learn preference functions. We wanted the model to kind of be wanted to train it more iteratively. Um, also, we started looking at um, conditioning on like the knowledge graph to generate dialogue or generate next responses instead of um, just an unsupervised solution, which a lot of these uh, LSTM-like models, papers, they talk about. So just from model architecture and coming up with new solutions, um, we had to take many steps beyond what was uh, currently shown. And so a couple of things. One is, you know, it may not be a great academic paper if you just you know, combine context plus memory models plus hierarchical models into one solution and show how great the results are. Uh, a lot of the machine learning papers kind of or publications center around coming up with a whole new model and showing the mathematics behind it, behind it. And that's what ends up, you know, getting accepted to, um, to NIPS and ICML. So a, a lot of that research is not necessarily directly uh, applicable to what we're doing, whereas it's kind of like more around engineering the solution. So there's a lot of engineering work uh, that goes in, which may not be the most um, interesting machine learning advance, like a new model advance, but it's still pushing the results and the applications a lot along the way. So that's uh, more on the model side. Um, and, you know, I think something that... Um, there's been a lot of work in um, on the, on the generative side. There's been a lot of work in in images. So we look at um, sharp-looking images that have been produced by GANs, and that's why GANs have become such popular models. Uh, but that GANs don't work very effectively when you're looking at natural language generation. Um, there, we have found autoencoder models to be much more effective, uh, partly because the GAN objective function, you know, it starts pushing it towards uh, defining the um, posterior distribution very sharply. So that's how you end up getting very sharp, realistic looking images. But when it comes to natural language generation, it kind of pr produces the same very predictable sentences over and over. So that's where something like an autoencoder model works very well. So these are certain kind of findings that would be interesting for um, researchers to explore, but 
it, that doesn't really fit into a lot of the current academic models or current um, models of you know what gets what's a more interesting publication over another. Uh, so you mentioned a few uh, things in there. Um, one is hierarchical LSTMs. What, what are those, and how do they come into play? So Sunspring, um, you know, it all came about because we wanted to improve models, the model beyond Sunspring. So an LSTM, long short term memory model, um, you know, it does a better job than an RNN uh, in terms of long term um, dependencies. So an RNN tends to kind of forget um you know what what was the word that was like five six um sequences ago whereas an lstm tends to remember so like within a sentence you get more coherence but there are still limitations so if you keep producing coherent sentences that doesn't make for a story so let's add more structure to that so now if you're with a hierarchical lstm um, you can learn dependencies across sentences, for example. So now your paragraph that you've produced um, becomes more coherent, more understandable. Um, now you can take it a step further. Now you can define hierarchies, right? It could be um, paragraphs to sentences to words. It could be even beyond that. It could be multiple paragraphs to sentences to words. So these hierarchical LSDMs uh, provide more uh, consistency in the sentences or, or the words that have been generated. Are you training them uh, hierarchically as well, uh, meaning independently, or are they? Uh, is it a model that you're training end to end? Yeah, that's a that's a very good question. So when we tried to train them purely unsupervised, the hierarchical uh, models, it's it, you do get consistency across paragraphs, but that's not necessarily the most useful um, when you're trying to generate like stories or you know do something interactive with a, a story writer or director. So we had to use a lot of like annotations. So these annotations were basically we had uh, human annotators saying these um, paragraphs you know depict the same idea, or we had encodings saying which. If you're using purely uh, hierarchical models, then every paragraph would be sequentially, we'll make the assumption that every paragraph is sequentially, you know, follow, follows a sequential format. That's not the, necessarily the case with stories. So we could, we had to tag these stories by paragraph or by even sentences to say, this relates to that paragraph from page three, you know, uh, section two. So, those are the longer range dependencies that we could train our model on because we had the the annotated data. It, it does strike me that a lot of the challenge in what you're doing has to do with, you know, how do you represent these different contexts or these different concepts and contexts for that matter and the relationships between them and, you know, what are the properties of, I guess you can get arbitrarily detailed with this. Like, what are the properties of a given prop? And, you know, is there some inconsistency in the way this LSTM is trying to generate someone's use of a prop? Or you're probably not trying to go that far. But have you learned any secrets or tips for, you know, just dealing with this representation problem generally? Yeah, so in terms of representation, that's why we found that the knowledge graph is the more most efficient 
uh, structure for learning or encoding these dependencies. It's the most um, succinct representation of uh, these dependencies. So now we augmented our model so that even for the LSTM, it's conditioning on um, all, all the output is conditioned on the state within a knowledge graph. So let's say you have dialogues, right, that you're trying to generate for a character. Um, now node number five is where, let's say we need, in node in scene five is where we need to generate new dialogue. So we could either go with everything, all the words that were written before, or we represent the state of node five, and then the LSTM generates output conditioned of how you've encoded that state in node number five. So that's that's a much more uh, much better representation, and I think you know more research needs to be done in uh, looking at these knowledge graphs and how you can condition on these knowledge graphs um, to do generation. I'm curious if the concept of uh, embeddings comes into play when you're building these models? Definitely. So you can't just rely on uh, just straight, straight up words because, again, when we're looking at words, embeddings becomes very uh, important. You have analogies, you have similarities. So we have to learn... A, we base everything on learning a word and embedding first. And generally, I mean, that's, you know, it, it's the whole natural language generation and understanding is, is a very interesting problem um, in its own right, because uh, everything is so context dependent compared to, let's say, image recognition. Um, and, you know, that's why, you know, you have a company like uh, Google and, and uh, Facebook, because they have the the largest data set of images, you can see the most um, variation in that data. But that doesn't necessarily work so much when you're dealing with natural language, where you really have to focus on a, a particular, focusing on a particular vertical gives you much better results on trying to go after a broad problem. Um, you know, the, some of the um, natural language processing APIs out there cannot even get anywhere close to what we want to do because they're going after a lot of breadth in their responses. So that's why in terms of like understanding sentences in their context to a given depth is very difficult because context changes kind of so much based on the domain and the vertical. You also mentioned autoencoders. Can you um, share a little bit more about how you've used those? Yeah, so autoencoders we've found uh, work very well with um, natural language generation. So what an autoencoder does is, you know, the input layers have um, some number of nodes. The hidden layers actually have fewer nodes than, um, or fewer units than the input layer and the output layer. So what an autoencoder does is it starts with a large number of input uh, input nodes. So let's say 100. And the output nodes could be another 100. But the hidden layers would be uh, fewer, like 20 nodes. So what that forces the autoencoder to do, because it it's using fewer uh, nodes, uh, fewer units in the middle, it has to compress uh, the input and try to generate you know, the, the output of the same dimensionality, but it has to compress the data that's coming in. So what that does in, in terms of language is, you know, it forces uh, 
one way of understanding it, it, it you know, takes words and forces that into concepts. So let's say there's, you know, um, the input, is, you, you want to represent the idea that I'm, I take walks daily. There are different ways of saying that. Like I'm a regular pedestrian. I, um, I occasionally walk around a lot. So the same idea can be expressed in multiple formats. So an auto encoder, because it's compressing the data that's coming in, kind of maps things or is forced to map words into uh, into concepts in an unsupervised way. Are you doing anything where you're taking those concept vectors from the middle part of the autoencoder and then using those as representations in your knowledge graph? Is that kind of what you're getting at? Yes. So those kind of form, you know, they're they're basically they can form the states of the knowledge graph. So the state doesn't necessarily of a knowledge graph doesn't necessarily need to be um, something that is human interpretable. It could be, uh, you know, the middle layers of a uh, of an autoencoder that could inform the state. Oh, interesting. It's an interesting case study, perhaps on the. You know the practical applications of of AI, like all of the different pieces that you've had to put together to to build this solution. Very, very interesting. We started off in something that can be considered fairly niche because these are scripts written for you know Hollywood. But um, from a business point of view, a Hollywood itself is a very big industry, but even if you look at beyond um, Hollywood, it's the whole content creation industry is massive in the hundreds of billions of dollars. So although it's a very niche problem, um, the economic impact of it is uh, very substantial. You know, it's going it's it's uh, going after one of the biggest markets. So at this point, still there is a lot of you know. Um, uh, trying different experiments or uh, taking different ideas or taking different models and putting this, uh, these things together. I think there's fundamentally more work that can be done um, you know, to, to build a whole new class of models that are able to take context you know, in different settings, uh, able to encode relationships between entities, between people, and use that in generation. Now, that's that is a very um, interesting research problem to go after. And so, as a, a, a startup trying to bring a, an AI product to market, do you see part of your contribution as kind of advancing that research? effort or is that outside of the scope of what you're trying to do and if someone does it great you'll use it um but you're not in a position to to push these research types of questions how do you manage or balance that as a startup we discovered whole new market and set of applications we started in you know in um Hollywood and analyzing scripts because that data is plentiful like there's a lot of public data uh, available but we found that a lot of uh, companies, Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 companies, have the same need. They want to produce content. You know, they all are striving to produce better and better content. So, um, you know, you we trained our AI, our trained our uh, models on the best data out there, or we we 
we cut our teeth on the harder problem, which is producing really high quality storytelling, high quality content. That's you know what Hollywood is all about, and then applying that to a broader set of um, content creation that is very specific, like a particular company. You know, they they have a certain context in which they want to produce uh, their content. So that you know, our models basically translate over. So generally, I think you know, as a startup, we can't go after you know the broad class of problems and spend years dedicated to one or two um, uh, uh, core areas. So our goal is to uh, produce products that our end users want at the end of the day. Our end users are producers, uh, production companies, corporations producing content. So that's who we are catering to. But along the way, we've discovered a lot of very good problems. And that's one of the reasons we have collaborated with a a lot of universities. So we have strong collaborations going on with with Caltech. And, uh, you know, we've like hired interns to work on research problems very specifically because, you know, I think a like discovering these solutions kind of help um, the community overall. And I wish more and more people would look at these problems because, you know, that's uh, benefiting everybody. Uh, But also we can kind of discover, or we're always looking at the, at the research findings. So we'll notice them before everybody else and we'll you know, implement them towards problems where we, we have a path to market. So that's our approach, which is you know, trying to build the best product, but also keeping a close eye on research out there and also funding and collaborating with research labs and universities. It's been really interesting kind of chatting about how your path bringing this to bringing this to market. I think the there have been a bunch of interesting tidbits for me, but probably the most salient one is this, just all of the different pieces that you've pulled together to, to build a solution. And when I think about, you know, what it means to build kind of a, a, a knowledge graph for these, uh, these scripts, it strikes me as a really, you know, potentially, you know, challenging problem like in a lot of ways you know it's not although the scale is very different uh in terms of the number of documents that you're trying to incorporate into this graph the the challenge in a lot of ways doesn't seem all that dissimilar from uh you know what a google's knowledge graph you know in terms of the diversity of concepts that you have to represent in it and the the way you're pulling together all these technologies to support that is is very interesting yeah thank you and and you know um yes the volume is less but we do have a lot of uh complexity in the relationships and the data that we're trying to analyze mm-hmm. so um as a result of that we've had to you know, build some really solid proprietary data sets. We have to had a, we needed a lot of annotations. Um, so fortunately, we're you know we offered a product that brought us a lot of those annotations, and we could train our system. Um, so that goes hand in hand. You know, landing on you know our, our products are used by production companies and producers. That um, so we have the best data. Um, for these type of problems. And then we are looking for different ways to like uh, use that in enriching the knowledge graph in producing better generative output. 
just out of curiosity, what does your technology stack look like? Most of our um, models are coded in uh, TensorFlow. We use Python. There's different for on the product side. You know, we use uh, more Node.js and you know, web interfaces. And for our knowledge graph and coding a lot of that internally, um, I'm a champion of OCaml. A Lisp guy. Um, well, OCaml is related to that, right? Yeah, OCaml is a functional programming language um, like Lisp. But OCaml does a few other nice things. Like um, it has formal ver- verification. That actually helps. Uh, I don't think the research community has really um, figured out how to make best use of that. But if you incorporate formal verification, you can do knowledge graphs pretty well. Um, there's just some uh, properties that you can exploit from formal verification to construct knowledge graphs. Um, and also, OCaml has uh, object uh, you know, you can encode objects and classes. That means you can have a richer, you encode richer data sets that you can't do with, um, you know, Haskell and, and Lisp for sure. So um, functional programming languages generally, I think, are the way to go for um, programming uh, in AI because, you know, uh, functions are primitives and at the end of the day, you're, uh, you're doing lots and lots of functional operations on pieces of data. So I think like the whole com- AI community c- could do well to switch to you know, functional programming languages uh, from you know, Python and other in- imperative uh, languages that people use now. Awesome. Well, Dave, thanks so much for taking the time to chat today. It's been uh, really interesting. Thank you very much for having me, Sam. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. For more information on Dave or any of the topics covered in this episode, head over to twimlai.com slash talk slash 178. If you're a fan of the podcast, we'd like to encourage you to visit your Apple or Google podcast app and leave us a five-star rating and review. Your reviews help inspire us to create more and better content, and they help new listeners find the show. As always, thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.